Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome back to the analysis.news. This is part two of my interview with Andrew Colburn about his book, Spoils of War. Andrew is the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine. He's author of many articles and books on national security, including the New York Times editor's choice, Rumsfeld and the Threat, which destroyed the myth of Soviet military superiority underpinning the Cold War. He's a regular opinion contributor to the Los Angeles Times and has written for, among others, the New York Times, National Geographic, and London Review of Books. So I interviewed Bill Black, who used to be a financial regulator. He now teaches about white-collar crime. And he says, if you want to understand modern financial banking fraud, you have to understand that it's about the bankers, not the banks. That often the bankers, in order to enrich themselves individually, don't even care much if they're creating systemic risk for their own institutions. It seems to be the same things going on in the military and in the whole military industrial complex. And as you say, it's not about if the military is even effective, even in asserting some kind of dominant imperialist or hegemonic or whatever word you want to use, it's actually about the money itself. It's more about the for-profit process than the military or geopolitical objective. Yeah, well, that's, a very, it's very, that's very worthwhile to compare the, what goes on in the financial world with what goes on in the military world, because it's exactly that. The, um, uh, you know, the bankers, we, you know, we found out after the 2008 crash, you know, how the bankers had you know, put their own institutions at, at risk and um, uh, in order to, you know, to, to keep their bonuses pumped up and their, you know, their, uh, um, you know, the money flow into their, into their pockets. Um, actually, it wasn't so dumb of them because they knew they'd be bailed out um, or they had every expectation bailed out by the US government and the Federal Reserve. With the military, I think it's the same, same mindset. Think about it in the same way. Um, Although I'm not sure who they're <laughs> counting on to bail them out if uh, something goes wrong and the nuclear missiles start to fly, um, it's it's you know to me it's astonishing that people can blind themselves so much. Yeah, they, they, it's either God or Jesus can bail them out, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. And some of them apparently really believe it. Apparently, Ronald Reagan was pretty much a true believer, and so was George Bush. I don't think we can actually underestimate the extent to which religion and metaphysics is all tied up with their version of Americanism. And it's not just Americans that intertwine religion and nationalism. There's that NBC interview with Putin not long ago in which he was asked, if you were attacked with nuclear weapons in a limited way, would you counterattack the United States, even though it might, not might, would lead to all-out nuclear war and end life on Earth? And apparently Putin's reply was, well, what's the point of life on Earth without a Russia? Maybe the Americans feel the same way. Well, they do, yeah. I mean, he, he may have felt that, but he had to say that because he couldn't say, you know, the rules of the game, he couldn't say, well, of course, we wouldn't retaliate because then, then he's inviting an American attack, you know, according to this whole mad religion of deterrence. Um, so you have to always say, of course, we'll counterattack. The tension over Taiwan and with China, 
I'm reading increasingly in magazines like Foreign Affairs and other places serious talk about the possibility of limited nuclear war. And then in your book, you talk about dial a yield. What's, what's that all about? Yes, well, it's, it's very important. There is this very pernicious um, school of thought among uh, sort of actually on for younger people um, who uh, who are in you know either in the Pentagon or in the in the decision making planning process or in the sort of related think tanks and so forth um, who think that you can actually fight. A limited nuclear war with China. That you know, if you showed, if you said this is a limited war, and everyone would agree, and the China, the other side would keep it limited. To that end, they're saying, well, it's you know, it wouldn't be so bad if we use just a little nuclear weapon. You know, it's a sort of small one. Um, you know, not like a great big sort of multi-megaton warhead, but that's different. Uh, so they claim to have produced a. Um, I mean, I say claim, I'll explain why in a minute, but they, you know, a dial a yield bomb, I think it's the, one of them is the B6112, uh, where you can, you know, program in how big a blast you want. And it can go down as uh, allegedly as low as a third of a kiloton, um, the equivalent of, say, roughly three, 300 tons of TNT. Um, which is, you know, in any other terms, is 300 tons of TNT is, you know, blow half a city apart. Um, <clears throat> but still, that's considered sort of a mini nuke, and therefore no one would take too much offense if you, uh, if you used it against them. And, you know, there are serious grown men propounding this thesis. Of course, the, you know, the relevant bureaucracies and relevant corporations love this because it's more money, you know, to develop that and whole, you know, you can, <clears throat> you can, you can have whole new bureaucracies to plan how to use it. Um, but yeah, but that is, you know, especially dangerous. They're courting, you know, because if the other side thinks that, oh, you know, well, they, they're thinking seriously about using nuclear weapons in a sort of conventional way, if that's not a contradiction in terms, I guess it is. But anyway, if they think about that, um, then we have to sort of take appropriate countermeasures, like preparing our own mini nukes and so on and so forth. It's, you know, it's hugely irresponsible. I mean, there's this book that's floating around uh, that's, you know, greeted rapturously by the sort of foreign policy elite um, by, uh, it's called um, Strategy of Denial, um, which is all about, uh, it's being read avidly around town. It's all about how, um, you know, we could indeed fight a limited nuclear war with China. Was part, not all of that, but it's certainly entertains that thought. Do you get a sense if they're serious about actually doing such a thing, like over Taiwan? Or is this another theory to justify another big round of military expenditure, another round of profit making? Well, I think they, I think it's I think they're confused. Uh, you know, they if you say, do you want a nuclear war with China? They'd say, no, I don't think I, I think they would. I mean, I, yeah, they would. But they say we have to place, we have to plan for the worst case scenario. Maybe it's unlikely the Chinese will attack Taiwan or the Philippines, uh, but or Japan. But we have to, you know, have to be ready, you know. And that's, you know, that's the get out. You know, once you say, um, 
you know, this is very unlikely, but, you know, we have to entertain it as a possibility, even though, you know, 0.1% chance or something, then the, you know, it's all, it's off, you're off to the races. Um, you can, you know, the, the floodgates, the, the budgetary flood, floodgates open. Um, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm surprised they don't, maybe it'd be a good idea for, to say, well, the major threat facing the Earth is a giant asteroid hitting it, so we have to devote all our resources to that. It's very unlikely. But it might happen, so therefore, you know, give us ten trillion dollars a year to defend against that. You might be able to sell that. Maybe they will, but the thing I think we have to keep reminding people about is how incredibly dangerous all this is. Even if there's never an intention on either side of the Americans or the Chinese or the Russians to actually use even low yield nuclear weapons, but shit happens. And as you mentioned, the Brzezinski example, there's several other examples, only because of some individual, a Russian Soviet, didn't make a phone call to Moscow, we wouldn't be here talking about this. There's been so many near accidents. I think Ellsberg thinks there's at least hundreds, maybe even thousands of false positive. And so far, they've been able to figure out, but it only takes one where they don't, for something that is clearly almost entirely useless, because as you said, once there's a few subs, you've got your deterrence. Everything else is unnecessary. There's no point for ICBMs. If you need such deterrence, then I guess as long as one country has nukes, the others do need some kind of deterrence. At least that's their thinking. But everything else is BS. And for the sake of that BS, the risk factor gets higher and higher. And even if they had such a thing, so what? Well, yeah. I mean, it's... it's, it's... It goes without saying. You should. We hardly need to be saying this. Um, you know, the, the, it's the danger is so extreme. I mean, to me, you know, people talk about the existential threat of climate change, uh, various little pan, another pandemic. I mean, this what we're talking about is so much more important, so much more urgent, and so much more frightening than any other of the threats that are meant, you know supposedly keep us awake at night. Um, that's why, you know, I find it, you know, I'm glad you're doing this. I'm glad, you know, Dan Ellsberg, um, who has certainly paid his dues <coughs> all the way along, um, is still sort of fighting this, working on this, because, you know, we really have to get people to understand just how dangerous a situation we're in. And with each new pumping up of the threat, I mean, like, in recent times, we've had an announcement that the Chinese have, you know, developed this new hypersonic missile that can go all the way around the world and sneak back over the South Pole and um, and hit us hit us in the rear. Um, uh, and therefore, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff called it close to a Sputnik moment. Well, you know, it was no such thing. It was, you know, this was entirely irrelevant in terms of. Um, what the Chinese might or might not be able to do to us, uh, you know, <clears throat> because, you know, it was sold as the idea this could get round to evade our missile defenses. Well, we have no missile defenses. I mean, we've been trying to make them work and spending untold billions for, <clears throat> you know, for half a century. Um, and it, it just won't work and they can't work and they will never work. Um, but somehow that thought gets put aside, and when the Chinese come up with this supposedly miraculous hypersonic missile, 
that can go all the way around the world and hit us in the rear, that's taken seriously and you know, isn't laughed out of the room, which it certainly should be. There's still nuclear counterattacks. Why on earth would they shoot the United States up the rear end when they're going to get counterattacks so massively? But that, you know, there's so many, so many reasons why this is, you know, nonsense. Um, so why do you think there's so little discussion of this in the media, certainly outside of foreign policy journals and maybe some elite press? In terms of the mass media, the whole issue of the danger of nuclear weapons, nuclear war, it's like it's sacrilegious to even discuss it. Right. Well, I don't know. You can look pretty hard in the, you know, the elite press to find any mention either. Uh, uh, occasional op-ed in the New York Times, maybe, but that's about it. Um, I don't know. It's years of successful propaganda. You know, I think it's years of brainwashing and something, you know, you mentioned earlier, which is it's all sort of out of sight. It's not just the bases overseas that are out of sight. It's um, you do you see we have this vast military apparatus, you know, seven of a, a trillion dollars uh, heading for. Uh, but we, you see very little sign of it. I mean, you know, here in Washington, D.C., you hardly ever see a uniform in the street. Um, and if you go over to the, you know, if you're near the Pentagon across the river, the most sort of overt sign of a military presence you see is uh, lots of people, you know, rather trim looking people with short haircuts, uh, you know, jogging. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's all very out of sight and therefore out of mind. Combined with, you know, you know, the sort of huge sort of militarist propaganda all the time, and you know, subtle ways, so many war games and video games, and uh, you know, and all this sort of fake stuff about honouring our veterans. I mean, I don't mean it's fake to honour the veterans. I wish they did honour the veterans. I wish veterans were properly taken care of. But instead, we get this sort of make-believe, you know, do this for our veterans and you know, honour the veterans. Um, so there's this whole sort of um, uh, sort of almost sort of religious aura that surrounds the military. I mean, it's militarism is the, is the right word for it, without actually taking a re realistic view of, on the one hand, risks of nuclear war, on the fact that we have this corrupt and greedy uh, defense sector, and that we don't actually they don't actually care much about really. The, certainly the welfare of troops. I mean, I tell in, in Spoils of War, in my book, I talk about, I give a couple of examples um, to illustrate this. In the Korean War, the first winter of the Korean War, half the US casualties were from foot, uh, frostbite. The reason was that no one had bothered to give the US troops proper boots that, you know, could uh, were properly insulated and, you know, protect their feet in freezing temperatures, sub-zero temperatures. The other side, the communist troops, by the way, did have good boots, well-padded, uh, felt-lined boots. So I was, I, was, I was astonished when I heard this. A veteran of the Korean War, a very uh, <clears throat> brave and accomplished officer, he told me how they would do raids on the enemy trenches to steal their boots. And he thought, why am I, a you know, soldier in the richest, for the richest country in the world, stealing the boots of the soldiers from the poorest country in the world, you know, because the boot makers weren't a big lobby, I guess, and they, they were preparing to, preparing to spend the money on big, exotic, expensive items like 
nuclear bombers. That's one example. And more recently, in the Iraq, in Iraq, uh, and I've got recent, you know, our recent wars, working class families were going into, who had sons or daughters in the military, were going into debt so they to buy them essential items like, you know, body armor, night vision goggles. Um, I mean, how disgusting is that? We're spending, you know, billions and billions of dollars a year on exotic things that didn't work, actually. Um, things, you know, exotic systems for detecting roadside bombs. And yet, you know, we couldn't be bothered to buy, <laughs> to, uh, to, you know, initially at least, to give them the basic equipment they needed. We couldn't be bothered for a long time, for during which time many people died or were maimed. We couldn't be bothered to give them properly armored vehicles. Um, you know, who cares? Who cares about the ordinary, ordinary people we enlist to fight? That needs to be understood because I think this is a big piece of the propaganda that justifies all this military expenditure is that somehow, first of all, that the Soviet Union was going to invade Western Europe. So it took this militarization of NATO to stop it. And now it's clear from all the documents the Soviet Union never had any intention of invading Western Europe. Ellsberg has shown they had no intention of a first strike on the United States. In fact, they didn't try to develop the capacity in the late 1950s for a first strike at a time when they actually could have accomplished it. And there's absolutely no reason on earth for China to start invading anybody. Taiwan's a very specific case. The idea that China wants to bring Taiwan back into China, sure, that's a possibility. Maybe someday that could lead to some military action. But to a large extent, that's being provoked by American rhetoric right now and arms sales to Taiwan and recognition that's coming closer to, closer to recognizing Taiwan's independence. China's not going to invade Australia. China is already Australia, Australia's major trading partner. That the idea China would invade Australia is preposterous. The days of that kind of colonialization are long over. Look, if direct colonization was profitable, the U.S. would be doing it everywhere. Neocolonialism, working through ruling local ruling elites, often dictatorships, is far more profitable. True. Um, well, yeah, it's a, it is. It's absurd. But yet, you know, we're signed on for it. Um, in fact, spending is more out of control now than it's ever been. Um, if you look closely at the way various programs are going. Um, there's a whole series of weapons programs that are underway that uh, they're seeded, they're positioned in such a way that they're committed to production, which means in across the country, which means that there's, you know, it's called political engineering. So they're politically engineered, which means they'll be impossible to turn off. Um, so we're, we're really locked into budget growth of at least 5% a year for, you know, for, for foreseeable, foreseeable future. Andrew, in the last few minutes we have left, let's assume there's some progressive members of Congress listening to this interview. What should they be doing right now? What should they be fighting for, advocating? Well, I think they, you know, it's, you know, the progressives are, you know, they, they tried to introduce, uh, you know, to get a 10%, you know, pass something calling for a 10% reduction. Uh, Bernie Sanders speaks in the 10% reduction in the, uh, in the defense budget. Bernie Sanders speaks eloquently of, you know, and he says he's voting against the defense bill. 
Well, that's good. They should do that. But, you know, they've been doing that for quite a while and it doesn't seem to be having much effect. I think there's, um, they should really take a greater interest on how the whole system actually works, I think. For example, um, very recent, there's one of the, in the 1980s, there was quite an active military reform movement uh, in, in the Congress and had a lot of support in the press. And their major success was to uh, get the creation of a director of uh, DOT, uh, director of the, of the Office of Test and Evaluation, basically to force the military to test their weapons independent, you know, have an independent testing system so that before we bought some new multi-billion dollar thing, see if it actually worked. The military hate, hated that, hates it still. Um, and they've done their best to either abolish it or emasculate it. Now, just recently, there was a new official appointed to head the, this, uh, this office. And he's clearly not going to give the military any grief at all. Um, he's, you know, he's, uh, he was chosen clearly because he had no experience of testing and, you know, there's was, was not much to be hoped for there. Not a single member of the confirming of the Congress uh, raised questions about this, you know, said, wait a minute, what's going on this? You're trying to emasculate this very important office. You know, they didn't take an interest. Um, I think we need we need, you know, the progressives in Congress need to be more aggressive, not just in denouncing the whole thing, but in asking those awkward questions. Um, and actually, you can get Republican, you know, at some fringes of the Republican Party, you can get support for that. Because um, clearly just sort of taking a, you know, well-justified but pious attitude to say, this is all madness, we've got to cut it doesn't seem to get you anywhere. It's um, pointing out how the system works and why it, how it doesn't work would do us a lot of good. Hearings on American nuclear war strategy yes. public, and then a focus on what is the point of an ICBM arsenal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And have, some, have someone there who, um, have some people there with informed comebacks, because if I guarantee you, if they ask that question, You'll hear a lot of, you know, they, they, these arguments are well honed. Um, you'll hear the justification for why you know, this was, if you have any fewer than, you know, 400 US you know, land-based missiles, then that invites an enemy attack. And they have, it's all, the theology of this is quite intricate. So you'd have to have people who've taken the time to educate themselves. We used to have people like that. I'm not sure we do now. Um, who, can, who can engage in a proper argument. I mean, let me just say, at the time when Donald Trump was president, these, the minds got a little concentrated when Trump was in office because people thought, my God, we got this lunatic, you know, with his finger on the button. And the, they had the commanders of the, uh, the commander of, or recently former commander of the strategic, of STRATCOM, Strategic Nuclear Force, in to testify. And they said, people are, the senator said, you know, people are getting a bit worried that uh, Trump's got his finger on the button. You know, if he gives us a mad illegal order, what can you do to stop him? And basically the only answer they had when, you know, after a bit of beating around the bush was they'd mutiny. I mean, I don't think so. <laughs> These are people <laughs> trained to do what they're told. I, I think the possibility of that would be, thing. but they got away with it. No one said, wait a minute, we have to change the system radically. They said, oh, okay, well, thanks. And that was it.
that was as far as we got for an, an informed debate about uh, you know the, the, the this whole issue of you know launch launch on warning and you know instant alert and all the rest. After working on your book Spoils of War, what are you left with? What's sort of your final conclusion or thing you would say after having gone through all this research? Well, I don't know, manic depression. Um, <laughs> I just hope people get the point, you know. Um, I mean, you know, every little bit helps. I mean, Dan Ellsberg has made huge contributions, not just obviously with the with Vietnam, but with his, you know, his books, his writings on nuclear weapons. And I just think the more people, the more truth we can sort of drip into the um, into the bloodstream, society's bloodstream, the better. People, you know, I have faith in the end. If people have it explained to them clearly, they'll get the point. Thanks very much, Andrew. And I urge everyone to go read Spoils of War. And then you'll find out why Daniel Ellsberg got so excited about the book. Thanks very much for joining me. Hey, you're welcome. It's been fun. Thank you. For people in the U.S., we are a 501c3, so if you're considering a year-end gift, please keep us in mind. For everyone who's already donated, thanks so much. If you haven't, wherever you are, that's a great kick how many people around the world are watching and listening. We can't do it without you. So thanks for joining me on the analysis.news. Mm -hmm.